Brother Bushman, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? Very well. Good, good. Glad to have you back on. Always appreciate you taking time to be on the podcast. Uh, to set this up for the listeners, we're, we're doing a series with scholars, uh, Brother Bushman, you, Terrell Givens, uh, Fiona Givens, and, and many others we've got lined up to kind of ask these same questions to and, and hoping that the group of you kind of answering these might, might speak to those who are struggling with their faith, who are having a hard time might give them some room to to stay in the church and and to be able to kind of I guess handle and bo- and move forward with with the messiness of church history. I think everybody who listens to this podcast is going to know who you are, but but maybe just for just a moment uh, share just a brief bio about yourself so that so that people will get a feel in case there's somebody out there who doesn't know who Richard Bushman is. Mm-hmm. Well, we live in New York City. Uh, I taught at Columbia for uh, a number of years and now retired. For that, uh, taught at other universities. My first job was at BYU. Went to graduate work, to my graduate work in the, the history of American civilization. Um, married, you uh, probably, your, your listeners know my wife, Claudia. We have uh, six kids and 20 grandchildren. I'm uh, now a sealer in the temple. So that's uh, pretty much my story. And are you still currently serving as a stake patriarch? I'm not. I'm still a patriarch, but I left for a few years to go to Claremont, and they had to appoint someone else. And when I came back, there was no need for two patriarchs, so I'm I'm, I'm in suspension for the time being. Gotcha, gotcha. So I want to jump into this, and and these questions are going to be nuanced questions, but I don't think they're going to be the first time you've heard any of these. This will, I think, this will be kind of standard quo for the things that you address when you speak to people. But I want to start off with the idea that the church is true. We we use that statement a lot in the church. Certainly, every fast Sunday, numerous members stand up and bear testimony that the church is true, and and most members who are struggling are struggling with this idea that we proclaim that we are really the only true church on the earth, the only church with which God is well pleased, the only church that really has his authorization to be doing, to be doing his work. And, and for members who are beginning to realize that church history is messy and some of them are having what we'll call a faith crisis and contemplating leaving, that statement, the church is true, begins to take on new meaning. What, what does that mean to you, Brother Bushman, that the church is true? How do, you, how do you frame that in your mind? Well, I think the most fundamental meaning is that uh, God is in this work. <clears throat> that he's helping us when we uh, try to serve in the church and try to bless our brothers and sisters. That he's uh, helping the leaders of the church guide the church along. And that in general, that we're on the side of our Heavenly Father when we're part of the church. But I, I don't think it means, I'm, I'm sure it doesn't mean, that no one else in the world can uh, can come to God uh, without the Church. I mean, we're uh, really only a fraction of 1% of the world's population. We can't imagine a God who wouldn't have any other interest in other people or that they would be leading vain lives uh, until they run into Mormonism. I think uh, I have evangelical friends who are probably stronger followers of Christ than I am. And uh, I would think when they went to heaven, God would certainly welcome them, and that people all over the world can be uplifted spiritually, that God is working with them, answering their prayers. So it isn't really a matter of salvation, I don't think. It's just a belief that we have God with us in our work. I would add one other thing. When I uh, hear the statement, there's one true 
that uh, the church is true, where normally puts the emphasis on the word true, but I would put the emphasis on the word church, because I think what we do have is we have particular missions that we can do as a church that may be distinctive, or at least we're particularly good at, and ours is producing people of goodwill. People who grow up Mormons learn to be generous with their time, they learn to sacrifice, they learn to get, to get along with other people, respect other people's feelings, to avoid competition and striving to get ahead. And I think that those are wonderful gifts that really come to us through our church experience. And I do think we have a mission to carry that kind of goodwill out into every part of our lives, into boardrooms and playing fields and stages and classrooms, wherever we go, how we should be the people of goodwill to sort of fulfill the, the uh, desires of the angels when we visited Christ. So I think that's one thing that, um, that we should be, make the most of, is this wonderful cultural experience that teaches us to get along and work well with other people. I like that. I like that. Can I can I push a little bit though? I want to ask you, I know the church in the nineteen seventy eight First Presidency letter acknowledges that people like Muhammad and Confucius were inspired. Orson F. Whitney and some of his quotes from years back uh, when he was an apostle in the church years and years ago, had several quotes that talked about how the, the Latter-day Saints were such a small part of God's work and that God was using essentially non-members to further his work and, and that they were even, he even used the term among its auxiliaries. My question would be, would you even go so far, Brother Bushman, as to say that that like people like Pope Francis, for instance, in the Catholic Church, that on some level, and I'm not saying that he holds priesthood keys or that he is officiating saving ordinances, but that on some level he is called and authorized by God to do some kind of work to help bring uh, God's children back to him. W- would you go so far as to say that people outside of the church in this dispensation might even be called and authorized by God to be part of this work? Oh, absolutely. I think without question to say that um, God is only working through the small number of Latter-day Saints I think would be a travesty. I think he's working through lots of people in that uh, they receive inspiration. I mean, uh, I guess you could say they're authorized. They're they're acting in the name of God. I think uh, without doubt that's uh, what's going on in the world today. And we should think of ourselves as allies of all those people. We should join forces with them and congratulate them and support them everywhere we can. I love that. Thank you. Uh, the next one I want to tackle, it's kind of a, a subset of this, which is the Book of Mormon and, and the idea that we also bear witness to the Book of Mormon being true. Recently on a Ask Me Anything uh, thing you participated in on Reddit, which is a, an online discussion board where people can kind of jump in and ask any kind of question, you made a statement on there that I had never heard you talk about before, which was this idea that we're going to have to come to grips with the Book of Mormon having having a little more perhaps 19th century phraseology, 19th century ideas, 19th century concepts in it that, that, and I don't want to pick on, say, apologists, for instance, but that some apologists are kind of hesitant to really acknowledge. It seems like you've gone a step further and said, look, some of this stuff's in there, and we're going to have to come to grips with the Book of Mormon being maybe something a little different than than the idea or the cultural uh, paradigm that we've placed it in. Could you speak a little more to that of maybe what, and in your mind, how you reconcile this idea that the Book of Mormon is this 
historical work that, that really does at least in some level take place a long, long time ago. And we are dealing with Nephites and Lamanites, but also in the same regard, we also find bits and parts of Joseph within its pages. Well, uh, yes, I do believe that. I think right now the Book of Mormon is a puzzle for us. Even people who believe it hardly in, in every detail, it's a puzzle. And to begin with, we've got the puzzle of translation. Translating the book without the plates even in sight, they're wrapped up in a cloth on the table. Um, it's, so it's, it's not something that comes right off the pages, the characters on the plates. So we don't know how that works. And then there is the fact that... Um, you know, there's phrasing everywhere, long phrases that if you Google them, uh, you'll find them in uh, in 19th century writings. The, the theology of the Book of Mormon is very much 19th century theology. And, you know, it, it reads like a 19th century understanding of the Hebrew Bible as an Old Testament. That is, it has Christ in it, the way Protestants saw Christ everywhere in the Old Testament. That's why we now call it Hebrew Bible, because the Jews never saw it quite that way. So these are all problems we, we have to deal with. On the other hand, there are things in it that are very ancient, uh, and you know, like the first chapter of First Nephi, with a, what's called the throne theophany, which is a very ancient form of revelation, where you see the Lord on his throne coming down, and uh, all the way through. So I think we have... I don't know quite where to stand on this. I think it's, as I say, a puzzle. We're working our way through it. Uh, but I think we have to go back to Blake Osler's dialogue essay of, uh, I think it was 1985 around then, where he talked about the Book of Mormon's expanded text. I don't think it comes out of Joseph Smith's mind. I don't think he knew enough to put all that stuff in the Book of Mormon. I, I don't think. But <clears throat> so there's sort of an anomaly there. But on the other hand, the book has uh, all this sort of modern ring to it as well. And that's why I think we're sort of left with a puzzle of just how to, to situate the book. I personally uh, believe in the Nephites. Uh, it's, uh, you know, when I read those stories, they sound awfully real to me. I certainly can't imagine Joseph Smith writing them. Uh, there's just too many strange and fabulous things in there. So... Um, uh, we're sort of left in a dilemma. I would say at this point, some years ago, if someone told me they didn't believe the Book of Mormon was historically accurate, it was just some kind of a modern creation, I would have thought them theoretical. I wouldn't say that anymore. I think there are faithful Mormons who are just unwilling to make take a stand on its historicity. I disagree with them. I think it is a historical book, but um, I can recognize that uh, they can be fully committed to gospel in every way and still have questions about the Book of Mormon. So you, so you would so you would leave room now for members of the church who who don't see the Book of Mormon as a historical text that's something it's it's either you know pseudo scripture or I don't even want to say that I don't think that's even a fair statement to, I think it is scripture but that it isn't truly based in some ancient civilization that Joseph is somehow giving us s- scripture 
in some new way, or at least some way that we've never really set up a paradigm for, or a way of kind of understanding. I guess let me let me make it really simple. For members of the church who don't believe the Book of Mormon is historical, but still believe it to be scripture, still believe it to be good for their lives, still believe it to be a benefit, you've it sounds like you've come to grips to give them more room and to let them hold that ground. Yes, I would. I would. I, I know people of that kind, and they're very good people. Yeah, that's and that's and that's great. I've I'll just share with my listeners, and I've got some episodes coming out where we're going to talk about this. But I've kind of gotten to the point. It sounds like maybe you're kind of in this space too, because you say it's a dilemma, and we're we're kind of figuring it out. I've kind of come to a spot, Brother Bushman, where I no longer really care if the Book of Mormon's historical or not. I'm just not going to fight for that ground. I just know the book has changed my life, and so I'm just happy enough each week in and week out, just yeah. reading from its pages and and feeling you know feeling inspired and encouraged by it, becoming um, drawn to Christ through it, and let somebody else fight over the historicity. I think that's perfectly legitimate. I think that's a very strong position. If the book brings you closer to Christ, it's fulfilled its mission. That's that's what's critical. Yeah, that's it, it does what it says it was designed to do, which is to bring all into Christ. Um, I want to just ask you maybe about the office of prophet and kind of lead into that next. And, and I'm kind of hitting on these these things that we would see his ground perhaps like in a temple interview or the questions that we're going to ask there. And so this next one on a prophet, I think most members of the church understand the office of a prophet to be a man, and I would include apostles in this as well, men who who speak to God face to face and then, then deliver his mind and will to the people. And I know Oliver Cowdery early in church history when when he is one of the Book of Mormon witnesses, when they set apart the Quorum of the Twelve, they essentially admonish them to seek out a personal visitation with God or his or with Jesus Christ and to testify of that manifestation. It, it feels like today in the church, the brethren, one, are really hesitant to be direct about if those visitations occur and what they involve. And two, for instance, Elder Oaks recently at the Boise Rescue made a comment that the brethren are special witnesses of the name of Christ, of his role, of his mission, of of his work. And yes, they're special witnesses of Jesus Christ, but only in the same way that all of us as members are special witnesses to Christ by being recipients and having the gift of the Holy Ghost. Your thoughts on a prophet and, and what our expectations should be and what role he fills and, and if, you know, and I don't know, maybe you don't want to be put on the spot, but do you think these men have seen Christ? And, and can you add any light to maybe how we've set up a paradigm of what prophets are and, and maybe how we need to adjust that standard possibly? I, I wouldn't, um, question the possibility that they have seen Christ from time to time. That- that could well happen. Um, but I don't think it's face-to-face all the time. I don't think they're given um, instructions, detailed instructions on how to do everything. I, I like Elder Oaks's version of it, that they are doing the same thing that every bishop and stake president and religious society president and really every father wants to do, and that is have the Lord's inspiration in every decision so that it's not like a fax machine where the instructions come and then you just carry them out, but the Spirit of the Lord infuses their mind so their instincts are right and the right thoughts come to them and their judgment is good and they sense where goodness is to be accomplished. 
And I think they're very good at that. They're men who have um, which devoted their lives, many of them, large part of their lives. They've done a lot of sacrifice. You don't get to be a, an apostle or a president of the church unless you've spent a lot of time in the harness for the church. So I think they're, uh, they're people that we have to respect and honor as, as a spokesman for God, and that's, that's their office. That's what they're supposed to do, and we're supposed to follow them. So I'm... I'm willing to say that everything's human. There is no unmediated access to the mind and will of God. Everything comes through a human mind, and that human mind will shape things and direct them. We all know presidents of the church have themes that govern them. So everything's it's very much a human-divine collaboration. But I do think it's very important for us to continue to believe that the leaders of the church are inspired. That's the basis of a lot of things in our lives. And if we undermine that, we'll undermine things we don't really want to undermine. For example, I think that's the anchor for our belief that we can receive revelation. Latter-day Saints excel any group I know in seeking the Spirit of the Lord. Common, ordinary life, Latter-day Saints are always wanting to seek the inspiration of the Lord. They always ask about decisions, whether they get help or not, they keep going back and seeking God. And that striving, spiritual striving, I think is anchored by the fact that we believe God is in this church, is guiding the prophets, because he guides his prophets, he can guide us too. So I think we always want to respect their inspiration, and I I believe they receive it. You could, you could live a very good life just by following what you're told to do by the the general authorities of the church. Yeah, yeah, I and I hear that, and I totally validate that. But it it, it begs a few questions. Um, let me throw one out at you, which is, if if we grant that these top fifteen men are inspired and and receiving inspiration, but perhaps don't have this this kind of contact with the Savior that I think the average member thinks they do. And realizing that with issues in the past, such as Brigham Young claiming the Adam God idea came from Revelation and, and Spencer W. Kimball, you know, denouncing that and the brethren giving theories and, and, and ideas to why the priesthood ban was in place. And they labeled those ideas as doctrine only to have the church today disavow mm-hmm. those kinds of teachings. And so there's this recognition that there's some hit and miss going on. Even if we grant that there's more hits than misses, that there's this hit and miss going on. And and that each of us are responsible in the church to be led by the Holy Spirit and and to have that be a guide in our lives. Where do you fall on, and I get it, it's risky ground. I'm not saying that we need to be disobedient or dissent against the brethren often or a regular basis. But where do you come down on if if the Holy Ghost is bearing witness to you on a position that you feel impressed to hold, and that position is different than where the 15 men in the church currently hold? Do you have any thoughts or ideas for members who are really struggling with that balance right now of mm-hmm. of feeling feeling the need to dissent on a social issue, feeling the need to dissent on a historical issue where the brethren seem to want to hold some other ground? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think you can ever abandon your own conscience. Ultimately, you, you have to be responsible for your own life. You can't turn that over to someone else. You have to decide for yourself uh, what is right. And... Uh, I mean, Elder Oakdorf has told us the brethren make mistakes, so we, we can't expect um, we can't expect perfect, perfect, unmitigated. Uh, I don't know what the word is. 
exact truths of every kind coming from the brethren. It's coming from their minds, and we have to decide how it applies to us. There's no escaping uh, that responsibility. But what I'm pleading for is respect for those opinions, for recognition they come from very strong, good, good and experienced men, and to take what they say very, very seriously. In the end, you may come down slightly different than they but if your spirit is right, and if you really are trying to do what's right, you'll be okay. But they're not going to condemn you for disagreeing on something um, like like that if you do it in the right spirit. Yeah, and and I think that's I think that's the case. I feel like you know Elder Christofferson a few months back when the church came out strongly on this religious freedom idea. He did him and Elder Oaks did an interview with I think it was the Salt Lake Tribune, and, and Elder Christofferson said, "Look, you know members of the church hold different opinions on lots of things." He said they're welcome to do that if they think that's right. He said the the problem comes in when we begin to advocate for our position, and I, what I understand him to mean is that we're perfectly fine holding a difference of opinion or dissenting against a a stance or an idea. It becomes a problem when we begin to shout from the rooftops that our position is right and their position is wrong mm-hmm. and begin to try and draw people to our side. Is that is that where you see the line kind of being as well? I think so. And it doesn't mean you can't speak your voice. You can't um, you know write your opinions. But if we... Take as our model American politics, where you advocate, you fight for things, and you try to remove people from office and um, and try to protest and arouse public opinion. We don't want that model. That's Democracy is not our model. Our model is brotherhood and sisterhood, where we try to work together. We try to reach understanding. We have to maintain that spirit of, of brotherly and sisterly cooperation and and. And within that spirit, I think you can say all sorts of things and uh, be just fine. Yeah, yeah. The The next topic I want to ask you about is Scripture. And we already talked a little bit about the Book of Mormon, but maybe just generally. Book of Mormon, Old Testament, New Testament. Um, lots of members, as they begin to delve into church history and begin to kind of come to grips with the complexities of our faith and Christianity in general, one of the things they feel inclined to do at times, at least for many of them, is to begin to let go of 100% literalness of Scripture. And so they'll look at stories like the flood, which is portrayed to us as a global flood, and they may begin to see it, for instance, as a local flood or maybe just allegorical altogether. Uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, I think even LDS leaders at times have insinuated that parts of the creation story are figurative. Where do you come down on what what is scripture to you as far as how you define it, and then also maybe where you fall in terms of how literal or how figurative scripture as a general idea, maybe what that mm-hmm. what that is for you? Well, I've, I've gone a long ways towards uh, seeing the scriptures as poetic. That is, that uh, Jonah and the whale is, is not necessarily a description of an adventure of some kind of seafaring person, but as sort of a, an allegory. And I think they were, those books were written in that, in that vein. So, frankly, uh, these issues really don't concern me a lot anymore. I think uh, the biggest problem is to try to discern what they mean, how they apply, what can we learn about God and our relationship to him through those scriptures. And I think it, we also have to have the license to say some things are just wrong. You know, when the Israelites went in and slaughtered all those people, 
saying that God commands to do that. I don't think we have to believe that. I think that's that's just wrong. So where I feel like the scriptures, um, where I just don't agree, that I think there's something immoral, um, I don't. I can just say that's I won't go there. So I think we have to see the scriptures as the experience of godly people trying to make sense of their lives and appreciate their situation, but. Uh, Eventually, we have to say what these scriptures mean to us and to take out of them what, what we, is applicable. So, so when you read the scriptures, for instance, and the people who are writing the story from their perspective, they, 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 you know, end up, one people ends up killing another people and then credits God for, for helping them to, to kill a whole, you know, nation of people. You would simply step back and say, look, man, these people are trying to explain why things happen the way they do, and and God often gets the credit, but in reality, who knows if if He's really the author of of some of the harm and hurt that is done that is attributed to Him through Scripture? Yeah, I would I would uh, take a position very much like that, but I would also say we have to try to understand why people would write that Scripture that way. What is it that would what kind of life situation leads you to feel that God is helping you to destroy your enemies and appreciate there are some people whose lives are so desperate, so harried, so pressured, so hopeless that they, they can only find satisfaction in a God who's going to avenge them from their enemies. I mean, you think, you know, the ways the Jews were treated in Germany. But when you just see people wiped out that way, you get an apocalyptic frame of mind. You you want God to step in and punish these people. So it's sort of one of the ways that religion services people is to sort of relieve the anxiety and the anger that they have by displacing it onto God. So it's not that they're wrong or evil, but they are using religion to help them in their life situation. So I want to be very empathetic to people who talk that way. Right, right. I, I want to push a little bit here, and, I, and again, I apologize if I'm putting you on the spot, and and uh, and I'll just say this off the record, Brother Bushman. Anything that you just just is off limits or something you really don't want to answer, I'm happy to remove it. Don't don't feel held to anything. But I want to ask a little bit about Section 132. A lot of members of the church right now, as they're seeing for the first time the essays on polygamy, as they're really dealing first time with having to come to grips with some of these facts really being facts that Joseph that Joseph was sealed to a fourteen year old that that Joseph truly was sealed to women who were already married to other men and and is that really kind of uh, it's uncomfortable and it really puts us in a place to kind of consider things that really we've never had to kind of weigh as being a something that came from God. And so some members of the church, and, and I know some have been somewhat public and, and have almost faced church discipline for it, but some members of the church right now are, are trying to you know discuss amongst themselves or figure out in their own kind of faith journey if Section 132, for instance, is something that really, really did come from God. And I'm not trying to say that it didn't, but I'm simply trying to ask you, do you see some room... For members, and then I also want to ask you if you see room for the church on some level, even if we just say, look, we're not practicing this right now, it doesn't apply to us right now, do you see some room that members or the church in general could take Section 132 and just kind of set it off to the side and say, look, whether it came from God or not, we're just we're just going to set it over here and not really worry about that anymore? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it is going to be a subject of, um, 
of much discussion because it seems so contrary, not just to ordinary standards of morality, but the Church's own teaching, namely that we should have our wife, husband of one life, and that we are married and true to each other forever. And then to interrupt that by saying, well, you can also have another wife. It just seems like a contradiction in spirit, at least, of what we're teaching our, ourselves. So, uh, yes, I think there will be a long discussion. I think it's always a mistake to try to bury cultural statements because they're uncomfortable at a given point in time, try to obscure something. Because in other times in history, what is once buried has to be, has to be dug up again because we need it. It will have some use for us. I'm not making predictions of when we'll need Section 132, but I don't like the, the discrediting of any part of our cultural history because they can be useful. Right now, of course, it's very uncomfortable. Um, no one is quite happy with the idea of Joseph having many wives. I don't think the business about 14-year-old girls or even marrying other men's wives is the uh, real heart of the problem. I think the real heart of the problem is that he had one wife who he loved and he married other women. And that is a very difficult thing to do. The one strain of thought which holds out some hope for us, I think, is looking at Joseph's commitment or compulsion even for bonding people through the earth. He wanted to create an entire human family. He wanted everyone to be connected to everyone else. And marriage was one way he saw it doing that. You know, he didn't just want wives. He wanted children, and brothers and sisters. He wanted, he wanted to be just immersed in family bonds. So rather than cast aside 132, I think we need to keep contemplating. The fact that it's uncomfortable is not grounds for casting it aside. It's, it's dealing with difficult ideas that leads into new insight, to new thought. So I would say we should be a little patient talking about it and just see where it leads us. Beautiful. Uh, and you hit on this too. I think the church as a whole is really really struggling with with kind of where the logical thinking takes us in section 132. I'll give one example. Uh, politically, one of the things the church has said is, look, we're fighting to to prevent or, or to hopefully stop the world from changing the traditional definition of marriage. And yet the church itself, because of polygamy, at a time years back, looked to change the traditional definition of marriage. It almost seems like, I know we're talking different times, but the church is really kind of feeling itself out and trying to figure out how it can ask for almost the same thing from both ends of the spectrum. It, it almost like today is saying, look, traditional marriage is one man and one woman, and we got to fight for that. And yet 200 years ago, we would have been on the exact opposite side of this debate. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's quite likely that in the next 10 years, there'll be a case come up from uh, contemporary polygamists insisting on the legal right to uh, multiple spouses, so it'll get even more uncomfortable. The Supreme Court has to rule that uh, polygamy is legal, so it's uh, it's going to be a very difficult um, situation. Yeah, it almost seems like the church at some point is going to have to take a stance on whether our theology involves us hoping someday to go back to polygamy like it used to think, or whether we're going to say, look, no matter what happens in the political atmosphere to legalize these things, we're not going back to that. It almost seems like the church at some point is going to have to kind of step out 
and and make some statements on this issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's true. So it, it it'll get very complicated. I think before it simplifies. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I wanted to ask you. You know, let's just you know. I know you and I both are ones to kind of lead with faith and to you know certainly acknowledge that there's messiness try to deal with those things head on but at the end of the day try to fall on some ground that says look we have we have a testimony of the restoration and and see God's hand in it taking that for what it is what kind of shifts have you had to make recently it seems like as we talked about that ask me anything reddit uh, event that you participated in where you talked about the book of mormon in, in addressing it having, for instance, 19th century ideas in it, that that seems to be maybe even some new ground for you that maybe there's even been, you still continue to shift. And the reason I ask this, Brother Bushman, is that members of the church are really uncomfortable as they go through these faith transitions having to make these shifts. And what I'm proposing, and, and again, you can certainly say it, it isn't happening, but what I'm proposing is that Maybe if you would talk for a moment about the fact that you still make some of these shifts, that you're still shifting yourself, maybe that would make it more comfortable for members out there listening to say, hey, if Brother Bushman is still grabbing onto and changing his ideas on things, then maybe I can be a little more comfortable doing it as well. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, yeah, it's sort of the line upon line principle um, that uh, things come along. Um, on, on the matter of um, church history, I think we, we really just have to go with where, where the documents lead us. And uh, right now we're doing a pretty good job of that. I mean, the, the shifts are occurring in church headquarters as much as in my mind. I, I pretty much go along with the story that the Joe Smith Papers editors are putting together out of the, uh, the original documents. So uh, when new things come along, we have to adjust to, to what we find. I, th- I think... Um, you know, when I talk to um, people whose faith is being tested and they're unsteady, my initial reaction to questions like that was to give them an answer. You're having problems with 14-year-old brides? Let me tell you the story of that and sort of straighten them out. But I found that that doesn't work very well. It doesn't seem to address the real problem that they're having. So my current um, response when I hear people and try to get clear what's on their mind is um, to ask them how they feel about Christ. It seems like it's beside the point, but I don't think it really is. And people really feel like they need a Savior, that that there's comfort and strength, moral light that comes to them through Christ. I am pretty sure they're going to be all right. Um, They'll work their way around these these problems. So uh, rather than say, be prepared to change of any sort, I would say, Make sure you've got a foundation to your, your belief and going back to the basics uh, having to do with faith. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I want to ask you about the word doctrine. Uh, there are lots of talks in the church where leaders tend to kind of imply that the word doctrine means truth from God that never changes. And yet I think, as you very well know, our history is full of evolving doctrines uh, some of these doctrines we've even taken 180 turns on. Some of those weren't, weren't even explainable in the sense that, you know, God condoned this idea then and he condones this idea now, but rather that at least on some of these instances, we, we have to acknowledge that in a previous time or maybe even perhaps now currently, it's at least possible that we we're just flat out getting it wrong. You hinted at Elder Uchtdorf's comment that we've made mistakes. That seems to kind of hit at that idea. 
Elder Uchtdorf gave that talk just a few months before the race essay was released, and I, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think he was trying to prep members for these essays as they came out to just understand that, hey, sometimes church leadership has made mistakes. How do you see the word doctrine? I mean, do you, it seems like we want in our teachings to have these solid things that we can depend on that will never change, but it just seems like reality says we've got to come up with a new meaning for the word that allows it to sometimes even be wrong. Well, I'm going to feel that um, the role of the prophet is to make teachings of the past relevant in the present. So Christ is always citing Isaiah. Paul is citing all sorts of scriptures going back, trying to make what's there in the prophetic tradition useful in the prophetic moment, the now. And the, uh, you can say, well, this is wavering, this means nothing is sure, but I don't think that's true. I mean, the nature of conservatism is that you hold on to what's worked, move gradually to applications to the current conditions. The prime example, of course, is the United States Constitution. The Constitution that's, that's written in 1787 still exists. They don't change any of the words, but the meaning of that Constitution is constantly being revised by the Supreme Court. Well, can you say that the Constitution has changed, that it's that it's unstable, that it's feeble, that, that it has no continuity. Well, that's not true. We're very committed to that Constitution, and we have to keep making it work now. So that's why I'm encouraging people when they feel anxiety about polygamy or something, not to just throw over Section 132, but keep thinking through what does this mean to us now, what, what's involved in all this, uh, because I think that's the way... We maintain a tradition that stabilizes and guides us without being paralyzed by it or frozen by it. So there's, there's always going to be change amidst the continuities. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, I got two more questions for you and then we'll, we'll let you get back, uh, to your busy, to the things you've got going on. I know you're a busy man and you've got, uh, lots of different directions that uh, you serve in. The the LGBT issue, and I want to be sensitive here as the interviewer to you as the interviewee, um, but I also want to press where I can. Uh, some in the church struggle with the message that we give. Essentially, we would ask our homosexual members or our gay members to outwardly not be gay, something that would seem ridiculous if we were to ask our straight members to outwardly not be straight. And... Uh, that in some cases parents react with a tough love to their homosexual children and perhaps even kick them out of the homes. We know that our gay youth suffer at times from depression, at least at a higher rate than I think straight kids do, and some of that even leads to suicides. I know this is a sensitive issue. I know that the church has taken a strong stance on it, but I want to try to make room where I can, at least in the conversation as we dialogue about these things. Your thoughts on where we're at on this issue and... And if there's some room for change and, and maybe any words of wisdom on, on how we can all be more Christ-like in understanding the depth of this struggle. I, I just know that just in my high priest group meeting last Sunday, some of the members of the class, the lesson, part of the lesson evolved around religious freedom and same-sex marriage. And some members just, I don't think they've ever had to put themselves in the shoes of a member who has that kind of a struggle. And they see it in a very black and white way. And it just seems me standing back, and I'm not claiming any superiority or, or you know, more uh, enlightened perspective, but it just feels like we're asking our homosexual members 
to do something that we would, if we took a step back and looked at it, we would recognize as an impossible thing to ask us as straight members to do. Your thoughts on this issue, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but I kind of have your thoughts on where we're at and maybe where we need to go or if there's room to change and and maybe some thoughts on things that we all probably ought to consider. Well, I'm um, I'm all for understanding and acceptance. I think that's that's the true Latter-day Saint attitude. We're a pastoral people. We take care of our flock. We take care of all kinds of people, saying that they all have errors and sins, and we love them and want to be part of our congregation. That's I think our deepest and truest perspective. Uh, I um, I I don't think we should ever put parents in the position of having to choose between their children and the church. That's untenable. We should never ask that of them. So uh, no parent should cast out a child because they're gay. You, would, you wouldn't want to cast them out if they committed adultery or into pornography. You've got to stick with those kids and come what may. So I think it's wrong uh, to expel them. Um, I personally wish, I wish that we could make our congregation safe for gay people. I, w- I would personally, this is very much a personal opinion. I'm probably out of, out of keeping or out of harmony with what many church leaders say, but I wish we didn't have to uh, discipline people who were practicing gays that came to church. I think they should be able to sit in the congregation and feel safe. I think if they're predators, uh, like every sexual predator, then yes. But uh, I would hope that we could accept people with gay inclinations, no matter what their, their lifestyle is. If they're promiscuous, I think that's unfortunate, like every form of sexual promiscuity is, um, and should be canceled. Maybe there's room for discipline to help them along. But um, I think in general, we should open our doors to gays, allow them to sit safe in their congregations. Do, do you see a day when when homosexuals in stable legal marriages could could be baptized, for instance, or could at least hold the Aaronic priesthood and could could be considered worthy in their wards to go to the temple and do baptisms for the dead or or to participate in callings, to serve in callings and to to because I think that's really the ground that has to happen if we're gonna create a safe place for these people. Do you see a day that, that could happen? I don't think it's out of the question. Uh with the way um, public opinion and church opinion is changing. We're really opening our hearts to gaze, and I think little by little, may take many, many years, we'll uh, find ways of making them more comfortable in the church. I, uh, I'll finish up with, uh, I actually had another question written down for you, but I'm going to go a different direction, and I just want to ask you this. I think this will be an easy one. Uh, I'm hoping at some point to sit down again with your wife. I interviewed her probably two years ago and, and really enjoyed that interview, and, and hopefully I can sit down with her again at some point. But I'll ask you to speak for her on this question. Um, let's end on, on this issue, which is women in the church. And seeing over the last couple of years, women now praying in conference when it had never been done before, women uh, having a say in ward councils in terms of what kind of sacrament talks we give, that's that's a new advancement. Uh, sisters in the church are now being permitted, even though I would say on a small scale, they're now being permitted to join some of these leadership meetings where women had never been present before. That seems huge. Uh, I just want to ask you, maybe if you can just share maybe your wife's perspective on this. What's her thoughts on all this that's going on, and and what does she think of all that's happened in the last year or two? Well, uh, Claudia's view has always been that um, 
she doesn't think women need the priesthood. That's not a big issue for her. But she thinks women need to be heard, that they need to be taken seriously, that their voices should be present in councils of the church at, at all levels. And that seems to be um, the way that, that we're going right now. I think actually this is theological. You know, the proclamation on the family says, seems to make gender sort of a fundamental division in humanity. And if that is true, we need to have the voices of people who are in some way different from males in all of the significant decisions. So I think there will be more of that. Uh, we're certainly moving in that direction now. I think women will find more ways to use their faith and their prayers, blessing children, um, maybe informally, but um, praying over them, maybe even laying their hands on them. So I think there are lots of things that uh, women will do uh, as time goes by. And the way I hear it, uh, a lot of the brethren are amenable to that. They're looking for ways that will show respect and bring women more fully into uh, the leadership councils of the church. Yeah, and it seems, you know, you hit on it. I think, I don't think there's really any theological change necessary because we already have in our early history sisters of the church anointing with oil and giving blessings. And we already have this, this verbiage in our theology that giving blessings is an ordinance. We, it sounds like we already have room, whether we give women the priesthood or not, we already have room for women to officiate in ordinances and in sacred rites. Even outside of the temple, it would be such an easy step, it sounds like, to go back to that. I think so. And, you know, Elder Oaks in that sermon on women <clears throat> a couple of conferences ago said, if women don't act under the authority of the priesthood, what authority do they act under? Because they, they do have priesthood and in many, many forms, as you've said. So I think we'll just begin more and more to see that as uh, part of the woman's place in the church. Yeah, yeah. Brother Bushman, I just want to say thank you so much for spending an hour with us. I think these answers on these questions and these this kind of ground we're kind of meandering on, I think will be very helpful to members who are struggling and having a hard time. I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart that you came on today. Uh, I want to finish up. Is there anything that you're working on that listeners can kind of uh, peek up their ears and keep their eyes open that uh, that you're putting together? Well, um, at the moment, I'm finishing up a book that goes back a long ways on early American farmers, which I don't think many of your listeners will be interested in reading. But then after, after that, the uh, <clears throat> next book will be on uh, <clears throat> Joseph Smith's gold plates. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Excellent. I, uh, I hope then when that, uh, when that comes out, uh, hopefully we can get you back on and we can talk about that book. I just, again, I know how much you do in speaking to members who are having a hard time and who are going through this kind of faith deconstruction and then reconstruction and and the need they have to feel validated and to know they're not alone and to have somebody to kind of lean on and you've been that for many years. I just want to say on behalf of all of them, thank you so much for all you do within Mormonism. It's a pleasure, Bill, and I appreciate what you're doing with this podcast. Thank you. Have a great day, my friend. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. the dead to life. He's the one who fed the hungry and
God who gave the blind their sight. He's the one who walked on water, then he brought them safe to shore. Let him in, and he will take away your pain. When you feel his love, you'll never be the same. Come on to Christ, come on to him, and by his.